Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Alice's Adventures. This is the Mythgard Academy and session number 20 in Alice's Adventures as we are getting towards the end of Through the Looking Glass now. But we have another poem to discuss, and that's what we are going to focus our time on here this evening. Uh, very excited to talk about the White Knight's poem, which is one of my favorites. Uh, I Really, it's hard not to love all of the poetry in this, uh, uh, in this book. But um, uh, but I am fond of this poem. <clears throat> so, um, yes, we will be spending half the night figuring out how to refer to it. That is certainly true. Um, and uh, let's uh, let's see what we can do. Just a quick reminder before we begin um, that uh, our spring moot season is back upon us. Uh, so this um, this month we have our first of our spring uh, moots. Which is ironic because it's actually happening in the winter time, which is actually going to be in the summertime because it's going to be in Australia. Uh, so Osmoot down in Brisbane, Australia is going to be happening in the last weekend of January. I hope that you can join us for that. Of course, I'm really looking forward to um, going to Australia. I've never been to Australia before. Uh, looking forward to going to Australia and to seeing folks there uh, and to uh, getting to meet a bunch of our folks in Australia there that I've never gotten to see in person before. Um, but for all of you who cannot make it all the way down to Australia to join us, you can still uh, tune in uh, remotely. Uh, and even if some of the sessions may possibly be at times of the day you might normally consider inconvenient, um, we will... Uh, uh, we will have recordings of all of the sessions available for everybody who signs up remotely. So one way or another, you should be able to make it work. Um, but let us get back to the text. In Tarlonio, we were threatened with a sing-along in the last session. Um, so uh, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to that. I'm not 100% sure of the uh, melody, but I uh, found one that I'm sufficiently convinced uh, in that I will... Uh, I'll give it a shot uh, as, as, when we get there. So let that let that loom uh, and, uh, and 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 hang over your heads uh, for the first little while here while we finish up the discussion with the White Knight. Um, so um, the uh, the the passage we didn't get a chance to talk about before we get to the song at the end was when he was talking about his greatest. Invention. Um, uh, in particular, he had just fallen off his horse and thought of an invention while he was on his head on the ground. Uh, it, it, this is a very spontaneous new invention that he just did. So he explains, Now the cleverest thing of the sort that I ever did, he went on after a pause, was inventing a new pudding during the meat course. In time to have it cooked for the next course, said Alice. Well, that was quick work, certainly. Well, not the next course, the knight said in a slow, thoughtful tone. No, certainly not the next course. 
then it would have to be the next day. I suppose you wouldn't have two pudding courses in one dinner. Well, not the next day, the knight repeated as before. Not the next day. In fact, he went on, holding his head down and his voice getting lower and lower, I don't believe that pudding ever was cooked. In fact, I don't believe that pudding ever will be cooked. And yet it was a very clever pudding to invent. What did you mean it to be made of? Alice asked, hoping to cheer him up, for the poor knight seemed quite low-spirited about it. It began with blotting paper, the knight answered with a groan. Well, that wouldn't be very nice, I'm afraid. Not very nice alone, he interrupted, quite eagerly. But you've no idea what a difference it makes, mixing it with other things, such as gunpowder and sealing wax. Okay. Um. <laughs> so, first off, I... I don't understand exactly how... So, the White Knight is a delightful character. I love the White Knight. Um, there is some of the comedy of some of the other characters, even in this book, more so, in my opinion, in uh, Alice in Wonderland, where the, the humor kind of falls flat on me a little bit. Um, I love the White Knight, though. I find the White Knight very funny. Um, and sort of charming. He's funny in part because I feel that I'm not being asked to laugh at him all of the time. Um, not that that's happening constantly throughout this book, but, but it happens a fair amount of the time. Uh, and, um, I, Alice, of course, is <clears throat> quite tenderhearted and feels very sorry for the night. Uh, but, uh, anyway, I find him very funny. But how does his thing with inventing things, how does that fit into the pattern of what we've been watching unfold in this story? Um, I don't know that I've ever really solved that. Um, the best I can think of is that... Notice that what he does is he's constantly taking particular things, known items, and he is, his, his inventiveness, uh, his inventiveness is to repurpose that thing, right? Um, to take an item <clears throat> intended for one thing and decide that it can be used for something else, right? Um, it's interesting. Dolor Stroke says he reminds me a bit of Fluter Flam for some reason from the Pridane Chronicles or the Pridan Chronicles. Never been quite sure how to pronounce it, except I, I rather suspect it's supposed to be Priden, like Britain. Uh, but uh, anyway. Um, uh, and yes, I agree. He is a little bit like Fluter Flam. Um, but. Um, So, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, repurposing things. He takes his deal box, which he has decided is going to be for carrying clothes and sandwiches strapped on his back, upside down so that the rain can't get in. 
But then when the sandwiches and the clothing all fall out because it opens up upside down and everything drops out and he's lost it all, um, he just it's quite useless to him now. But instead of throwing it away, he takes and he ties it to a tree, saying that he's hoping that some bees will come and build a nest in it, and then he'll get the honey. Right? So he's he takes the same item, which has disappointed him in one sense, right? And he's repurposing it um, for something else. Um, and of course, that's what we see he was doing with his uh, new pudding during the meat course, right? He's taking uh, blotting paper and gunpowder and sealing wax and calling it a pudding, right? A dessert. Now, Alice points out that uh, blotting paper wouldn't be very nice, right? It's, um, it's not going to be very tasty. Um, and probably not even if you mix it with gunpowder and sealing wax. Um, Alice is cutting through to what the thing is. Like, it doesn't matter if you change the name. It doesn't matter if you take blotting paper, even mixed with gunpowder and sealing wax, and call it a pudding. It's not really going to be a pudding, as even the knight himself seems to confess when he says that um, he doesn't think the pudding ever will, in fact, um, be cooked. Um, and yet it was a very clever pudding to invent. The way in which he is taken... So I'm, I'm, as you can see, my first temptation here <clears throat> is to connect his inventions with names and things. This is one of our major themes that we've seen in Through the Looking Glass. The, you know, the, the sort of uh, investigation of the relationship between names and things. We got some of that with the fabulous monster back in the previous chapter. We got a lot of that with the gnat and the looking glass insects, of course, and the forest where things have no names. Um, <clears throat> rather, uh, rather pointedly there. It's connected, of course, to Humpty Dumpty and the authority over words and making them do whatever he wanted them to. Right. Uh, uh, by, uh, you know, bribing them, basically. Right. By paying them extra if he makes them do extra work. His decision that he could just decide what any word meant. In a sense, what the White Knight is doing and what Humpty Dumpty is doing are almost opposites of each other or uh, maybe complements of each other. <clears throat> right. Humpty Dumpty is taking words and deciding that those words should point to anything he wants them to point to, right? He, uh, um, he, he takes to himself the power of declaring that these words, uh, you know, that's glory for, there's glory for you, point to whatever he wants them to point to, right? The knight is taking the things and trying to repurpose the things, right? To, in a sense, to attach new names to those things. Sometimes that could theoretically work, right? Like, it's theoretically possible that bees could come and establish, and uh, the deal box that had been his uh, sandwich and clothing carrier could become, you know, a 
beehive. That's possible. That could happen. Uh, it's unlikely, but it could happen. Um, but um, uh, but in any case, some of the things are less are less uh, useful. I'm thinking of his uh, his cure for hair falling out in particular here. And remember his solution is that gravity was the problem, right? Um, things, don't, thing, things don't ever fall up, you know. So if you take a stick and put a stick in the ground and you train the hair to grow up the stick, then it won't fall out because it's not hanging down. It's going up instead of down and so won't fall up. Um, that is not exactly a name and thing issue. Um, so I'm not saying that this explains everything, unless we can see a way in which it is. I'm not saying that this, uh, that everything that he does, everything that the knight does fits into this category of, um, uh, of, of kind of, uh, investigation, uh, or sort of the, uh, um, examination of the relationships between names and things. Um... But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to, I wanted to just kind of address this. And as I say, admit from the beginning, I don't, I feel like I'm still missing something with the White Knight. I feel like I've always been missing something with the White Knight. Um, and we'll see if maybe we can, um, um, if maybe we, you know, we still have his song to look at, which will also, I think, be relevant and might help. Um, so I wanted to, that's one of the main reasons I wanted to make sure that I flag that. Notice the other thing that he does in this passage here. Notice the way in which Lewis Carroll plays with the fact, plays with enunciation, right? We've had many times when someone has said a thing and it is sort of taken out of context or, or taken, um, you know, sort of too literally uh, and thereby either misunderstood or misconstrued. Um, and this has many times drawn attention to the kind of uh, social cues, right? Implicit in... Um, uh, you know, the kind of the social relationship in conversation that, you, you know, the assumption that you will kind of play along with what is meant rather than what is exactly and literally said. Here, we have the knight not exactly doing that. No one's kind of twisting things and making fun of things in that way. But we have him sort of slowly rolling out twice in a row the same phrase with a different emphasis on a different word, right? Um, and the way that Lewis Carroll uses this to um, show, to have the knight reveal his sort of uh, depression, to go from his excitement. Now, the cleverest thing of the sort that I ever did was inventing a new pudding during the meat course. Again, the entire context is... Uh, that he is so proud of how swift his invention was, right? And Alice is, in fact, going along with this, right? In time to have it cooked for the next course. She's picking up what he's putting down, right? 
Well, that was quick work, certainly. Here she's so ready to, uh, to, you know, hear what he's saying, to believe him, to praise him and everything, right? Um, then he says, not the next course, not the next course, right? He says the same words twice. But the first time he stresses the word next, not the next course, not the next course, <laughs> right? And so the variation of emphasis, the first time he says it, those words mean, or imply at least, uh, it wasn't the next course. It might have been the course after that, right? Um, it was one of those courses. Just it, 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 it wasn't the very next one. But when you weigh the, when you then shift the when you say the same thing again, but you shift the stress to the last word, um, he's playing with the fact that it completely changes the meaning. Not the next course. No, it was the next something, right? It was the first time. It was definitely one of the courses, but it wasn't necessarily the next one. The second time, it's the next something, but it wasn't the next course. So what was it? The next day? That's what Alice picks up, right? Then it would have to be the next day. I suppose you wouldn't have two pudding courses in one dinner, so it couldn't have been... I mean, if it if it, um, if it wasn't the next course, the next course was the pudding course, right? It was during the meat course, and the next course after the meat course is the pudding course. Everybody knows this. Um, so, uh, and you're not going to have two pudding courses in one dinner, so obviously it would have to be the next day if it wasn't ready for the next course, right? And he has the same progression then Again, not the next day. One of the days, but not not the very next one. Not the next day, <laughs> he says again. All right. So yeah, no, actually. Um, so what? The next, um, the next week, the next month, <laughs> the next year, um, and of course, every time he repeats, you know, both the next course, next course, next day, next day. It gets, um, it gets pushed off further and further into the indefinite future until he acknowledges that. In fact, I don't believe that pudding ever was cooked. In fact, I don't believe that pudding ever will be cooked. Once again, the, for the third time, he repeats a sentence. This time, not just changing the emphasis, but changing the tense, right, um, to reflect the indefinite, um, uh, the indefinite sense of his, uh, 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 the, the, the indefinite pushing forward of the cooking uh, of his pudding. I don't believe that pudding ever will be cooked. Um, and yet it was a very clever pudding to invent. And now notice that is all he claimed at the beginning. The cleverest thing of the sort that I ever did was inventing a new pudding during the meat course. He doesn't actually say, Alice is kind of hoping, right? She's kind of wanting to give him credit, so she kind of goes along and assumes that he means in time to have it cooked for the next course. Um, but he never claimed it was actually cooked. Nor did he actually claim anything about it itself, like that it was nice, right? He doesn't say that it tasted good. He doesn't say that, you know, he applies no superlatives 
to his new pudding, Qua Pudding, right? What he's bragging about is that he invented it swiftly during the meat course, and that's what he comes back to in the end. And yet it was a very clever pudding to invent. Um, Alice then is continuing to try to play along, hoping to cheer him up, right? What did you mean it to be made of? Well, if it was never made and never will be made, at least you could describe it, and I'll try to appreciate it, she seems to be suggesting, right? But of course, when she's confronted by the fact that it began with blotting paper, um, Alice, who's a very truthful girl, has to admit that it really does not, in fact, sound very nice. Um, and so she can't, she can't even uh, encourage him uh, to that degree. Um, now, you're right, First Fish. I think perhaps in today's market, he would have more success um, as uh, you could... Um, you could certainly bill it as a high-fiber, low-calorie uh, uh, dessert. And so, therefore, I'm sure you could find uh, uh, sellers. Uh, in fact, the blotting paper pudding diet uh, could become all the rage. You never know. Um, but Alice uh, was not quite that avant-garde, uh, apparently. Um, anyway... Um, Yeah, um, yeah, Dolores Stroke, you're right. Um, Dolores Stroke is quoting Sarah J24, who was saying, during the meat course puts you on one track, then saying it was never cooked, sends you a slant, like, like a knight's move. Um, I think, I think that there are ways in which you can, um, map the knights, like the the idiosyncratic movement pattern of the knight in the context of a chessboard onto uh, some of the white knight's activities. I've never been wholly convinced by them, though. Um, I, too, feel that there there should be some kind of correlation, but I've never been wholly convinced by them. Um... Yeah, we'll come back to that during the song. Um, yeah. Um, anyway. One of the effects, going back to names and things, one of the effects, again, of the the repetitions, his repetitions with very slight variations, variations only in emphasis the first two times, uh, in the tense of the verb uh, on the third occasion, is <clears throat> a really interesting way that the knight illustrates how subtle can be the change that leads to an entirely different meaning. Uh, right. Um, as the, the wonder pudding right gets pushed further and further uh, off into the future. Um, when he is bringing up the song, we get the richest example 
of an overt play with names and things that we've had since Humpty Dumpty. Um, uh, and I've always loved this. It's long, talking about his poem, of course, said the knight, his song, but it's very, very beautiful. Everybody that hears me sing it, either it brings the tears to their eyes, or else... Or else what? said Alice, for the knight had made a sudden pause. Or else it doesn't, you know. The name of the song is called Haddock's Eyes. Oh, that's the name of the song, is it? Alice said, trying to feel interested. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, trying to feel interested. Feels like a, 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 a caption, you know, that could go below the, um, uh, the video call face of many a student. Um, the name of the, uh, oh, that's the name of the song, is it? No, you don't understand, the knight said, looking a little vexed. That's what the name is called. The name really is the aged, aged man. Then I ought to have said that's what the song is called? Alice corrected herself. No, you oughtn't. That's quite another thing. The song is called Ways and Means. But that's only what it's called, you know. Well, what is the song, then, said Alice, who is by this time completely bewildered. I was coming to that, the knight said. The song really is a sitting on a gate, and the tune's my own invention. Okay. Um, we have here, of course, explicitly a discussion of the relationship between a name and a thing. Right? You've got the song itself, and you have the name of the song. And those are two different things. The name of the song and the song itself. Not the same thing. But of course the knight introduces a completely different level here. Where the song is something. The song is called something. But that thing that it's called is not its name. Right? The name of the song and what the song is called is something quite different. And the name of the song is called something else, too. So you've got the four different layers, right? You've got the song itself, what the song is called, what the name of the song is, and what the name of the song is called. Notice again how Alice here gets trapped not by presuming upon, you know, the social investment of her interlocutor to go along with what she's saying and or what, with what she means, right? Instead, she gets trapped on the other side of that, right? Um, she is trying to play along with him. The name of the song is called Haddock's Eyes. Oh, that's the name of the song, is it? Like it's, I mean, to say the name of the song is called is a slightly, a slightly strange way to say it, but she knows what he means, right? He means the name of the song is Haddock's Eyes. And so she's trying to go along with that, right? And he gets all vexed. No, no, that's what the name is called. The name it really is the aged, aged man. Now, Alice makes the rookie mistake of thinking that what the, what the name of the song is and what the song is called, therefore, are going to be the same thing, Right? Um, 
But of course she's quite right. That's quite another thing. The name of the song and what the song is called is something different. Remember that there's something... We saw something similar to this uh, back with the Wilking Glass Insects when Alice was talking about knowing the names of the insects, uh, of many insects in her country, and the gnat asking her if, uh, or saying, oh, of course, they answer to their names. And she says, well, I've never known them do it, right? Um, and so was therefore asked, what was the point of their having names if they didn't answer to their names? And Alice was trying to explain, well, there's, there was use in the people who gave them those names, right? Like, what is the, what is the purpose of a name? Um, and so if you think about it, then, like, what, what was the gnat saying? If you call those names... You know, horsefly, dragonfly, whatever. Uh, if you call them, will they answer to the names that are being called to them? So, and the answer is no. So, the name horsefly is given to the fly by humans. But that's apparently not what the fly is called, right? I, so again, we could even we could see this uh, this sort of difference being opened up back then. The difference between the name of a thing and what the thing is called, and that those two things aren't necessarily the same. And that this whole business of names and things and the words that are attached to things is far more nebulous and complicated, certainly than Alice takes for granted. And of course, you'll remember, this goes all the way back to the Jabberwocky poem, the way in which w words and things are already being detached from each other in certain ways. We were looking at it in Humpty Dumpty's poem. You know, the, uh, the great song without a predicate, <laughs> right? In which we're never told the premise of the action or what actually occurs. Um, and, uh, you know, and in both songs, we have this, um, you know, meaning is being conveyed while strange things are being done to words, right? Uh, the relationship between words and meaning is being kind of interrogated through that, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, The White Knight takes for granted that these four categories... Not just that he takes for granted. He's actively annoyed that she doesn't understand that these four separate categories not only all exist, but are all quite obviously, to him, distinct. And to simply assume that the name of a song is what it's called, and what it's called are the same thing, is just clearly simplistic and ignorant. Now, I want to be thinking, when I want to come back to this, after we've looked at the song, and I want to look at the, these titles, these four titles that he gives. Haddock's Eyes, The Aged Aged Man, Ways and Means, and A Sitting on a Gate. Um, and think about those as four different labels for this poem, and how those four different labels relate to this poem. Can we 
begin to see what the White Knight means in exactly in his distinction among these four different categories in looking at how these four phrases are all connected to the song itself. Right? Okay. So we'll give it a shot. Um, all right. Sing a long time. Um, but before we get to the sing along, we get another one of those moments. Another mo one of those moments when the narrator, here he's not quite breaking the fourth wall, as he's done on a couple other occasions. But we get this really interesting dilation of this moment. So saying, he stopped his horse and let the reins fall on its neck. Then, slowly beating time with one hand, and with a faint smile lighting up his gentle, foolish face, as if he enjoyed the music of his song, he began. Of all the strange things that Alice saw in her journey through the looking-glass, this was the one that she always remembered most clearly. Years afterwards, she could bring the whole scene back again, as if it had been only yesterday. The mild blue eyes and kindly smile of the night, the setting sun gleaming through his hair, the shining and shining on his armor in a blaze of light that quite dazzled her, the horse quietly moving about with the reins hanging loose on his neck, cropping the grass at her feet, and the black shadows of the forest behind. All this she took in like a picture, as with one hand shading her eyes, she leant against a tree, watching the strange pair and listening in a half-dream to the melancholy music of the song. But the tune isn't his own invention, she said to herself. It's, I give thee all I can no more. She stood and listened very attentively, but no tears came into her eyes. Um. <laughs> Jackrabbit, I love this passage too. Um. What is happening here? Why is Carol doing this? Why does he grace this moment with this description? It's a gorgeous, loving treatment of this moment, right? Even the first paragraph here. So saying, he stopped his horse and let the reins fall on its neck, then slowly beating time with one hand and with a faint smile, lighting up his gentle, foolish face, as if he enjoyed the music of his song, he began. That paragraph by itself would be odd compared to the other songs that we've heard. We did not hear anything about the attitude or gestures of Tweedledum and Tweedledee when they were doing the, the Walrus and the Carpenter poem. We didn't get anything about Humpty Dumpty, right? We didn't, I mean, this, this, that's not been a normal thing, right? Um, and yet we're given that. Again, if that was all we had, it would be remarkable. That second paragraph is entirely remarkable. Did you notice? I was about to say the thing in that first sentence, but that whole paragraph is one sentence. Um, did you notice the thing that happens at the beginning there? Of that second set paragraph? Of all the strange things that Alice saw in her journey through the looking glass? It's the capitalization that I find so striking there. It's the title of the book. Right? Um, it's like this is the moment 
in which the book that we're reading itself receives its name. Like now we know what the book is called because we're, we get, it's like the title is drawn from this, from this sentence, right? This, this is it. There it is. Capital letters and all through the looking glass. And there's no other excuse. Um, there's no other excuse uh, for um, capitalizing that phrase that way. Looking glass, yeah, sure, maybe, right? If you want to capitalize looking glass, you could probably get away with that. Um, it would be a little bit odd, but it wouldn't jump out in the same way. But capital through, capital the, no way, no way. Um, and we're told that this moment is the, okay. I said it was one sentence. That's not true. We got a one sentence there. Uh, it's two sentences starting with line three of the second paragraph. All the rest of it is one long sentence. Um, I think this is the first time we've been told about Alice's later reflections on this experience when she's older. And we're not even there told exactly what her reflections were. Um, but um, we're told that this is the of all the strange things that she saw in her journey, this is the one that she always remembered most clearly. This is the moment. We've come to the moment that is going to stick with Alice the longest and the most perfectly, the most purely. It's a very remarkable spotlight to shine on this moment. And look at the kind of spotlight it is. It's the visual scene, right? It's not singled out because it's the most extraordinary or the strangest or the most memorable in some other way. It's not um, singled out because it was the most, you know, uh, frightening and palpitating moment in the story. It's not, um, it's for its beauty, like a picture. And it's described like a picture. We can almost imagine a kind of pre-Raphaelite painting of this, right? The mild blue eyes and kindly smile of the night, the setting sun gleaming through his hair and shining on his armor in a blaze of light that quite dazzled her, the horse quietly moving about with the reins hanging loose on his neck, cropping the grass at her feet, and the black shadows of the forest behind. All this she took in like a picture, as with one hand shading her eyes, she leant against a tree, watching the strange pair, and listening in a half-dream to the melancholy music of the song. Um, yeah, exactly, Sarah J. It's like this sort of snapshot memory of this moment. Um, she took it in like a picture, and she remembers it like a picture. It's described like a picture. 
but why? What is it? Um, uh, what is it about this moment um, that is so particularly memorable to her? How does this? How are we as readers meant? I mean. I'm picking up what he's putting down here, I think, right? I mean, I I am getting the fact that this is uh, a tender, memorable moment. This is going to influence Alice tremendously. I just don't understand why. And had I not gotten this paragraph, I would never have guessed, right? If this paragraph were not in the book, and at the end, I were to ask us to guess what moment in Alice's adventures was going to be the one that she always remembered most clearly. Would any of us have guessed this one? I mean, other than perhaps by chance? I don't see any... um, uh, I don't see any cues for that. Um, No, oh, so, uh, Timothy, good question. Um... She leant against a tree watching the strange pair. I think it's the horse in the night is the strange pair that she's watching, I believe. Um, though I, I agree there is a there is a sort of apparent element of um, like future Alice watching Alice in the night, right? Um, there is a kind of uh, a kind of infinite regression of this image a little bit, right? As we are watching older Alice in her mind watch younger Alice watching the night, right? Um, You know, there's a sense in which we're kind of zooming out in this sort of fractal image here, right? Um, Yeah, Fourth Dauntless, I totally agree. Uh, This is certainly not one of the most famous moments in the tale, so that tends to suggest that most readers wouldn't choose it. Yeah, no, I can't imagine. I can't imagine anyone, again, other than by chance, would choose this moment as, like, the moment. I, I, I see no other, apart from this cue, right, which we're, this, like, you know, big alarm bell that's going off. Um, I, I don't think there's any other cue that we would have that would suggest that this would be, you know, the, the, the greatest thing. Even, of course, it's um, the moment she's been waiting for what she's been overtly anticipating is becoming a queen, which is about to happen, right? He's about to deliver her to the boundary uh, and she's going to cross and become a queen. Um, So in some ways, there are reasons to think, we're given positive reasons to think that this would not be a moment that would move her particularly. Apart from that, um, we have her repeated if polite and fairly gentle protestations that she's quite tired of having poetry recited to her. And the fact that she was with even more politeness, trying to appear interested when he was bringing up the name of the song he was going to sing to her as she is, you know, reconciling herself to having yet more poetry, um, sung at her here. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, so again, that's another reason to think that this is not 
a life-changing moment for her, right? Now, we do have that build-up about um, how many who hear this song are brought to tears by it. Unless they're not. Um, and the narrator tells us somewhat ambivalently that no tears came into her eyes, though she stood and listened very attentively there at the end. Um, the other thing that gets emphasized, and again, before that snapshot memory paragraph, is how much the knight himself seems to love the song, as if he enjoyed the music of his song. We get a faint smile lighting up his gentle, foolish face. Um, the uh, the <laughs> the extent to which Alice has been assaulted with poetry um, has been at times. Uh, she tried to get Tweedledum and Tweedledee not to. Um, and they responded by reciting the longest poem they could think of. Um, she was about to politely decline. She was trying to politely decline hearing a poem from Humpty Dumpty. Um, but then he guilts her into it by saying that it was, uh, you know, composed particularly for her amusement. And so she couldn't very well say no after he said that. Um, so she's been sort of bullied with poetry, right, into enduring poetry um, f several times now. That is not the situation here. She doesn't receive it very gratefully, the news that she's going to have another song sung to her. Um, but his attitude, the knight's attitude towards his song, does seem somewhat different. Um, Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and I wanted to just, several of you were, um, recalling Don Quixote. Uh, I, I agree that Night of the Mournful Countenance, though, uh, I wonder I wonder if the vague similarity to Don Quixote. I get not a very striking similarity. He is not in his attitude, in his outlook. There's nothing in his words, I don't think. Uh, nothing that I'm catching in his words, which seems like a uh, an overt reference to Don Quixote. Um, nor to be quite fair to his horse, who seems quite competent. Um, nor does his horse seem to bear a very striking resemblance to Rosinante, um, who is... Uh, this, the White Knight's horse, seems to be a much uh, finer example of, uh, uh, you know, fine and chivalric horse flesh than Rosinante was, surely. Um, and yet... The age of the White Knight, combined with his very remarkable incompetence, not incompetence, again, of exactly the same kind as Don Quixote's incompetence, um, but um, 
it certainly could be said of Don Quixote as well that he had not had as much practice, perhaps, as other people. So anyway, so I just wanted to acknowledge I do see those connections, and I actually do think that the the kind of um, shadow of Don Quixote, who I think does lie behind the White Knight, is one of the things that I think it provides for me a, a very subtle kind of cue to humor, right? Like I, I have, there are some people even in this book that I'm not really sure like if it's okay to laugh at them or if it'd be mean to laugh at them, right? Or like, are they meant to be laughed at or not? Remember that image of Alice looking at Tweedledum and Tweedledee and trying to like, are they real people? Or are they not? Like, are they labeled around on the back of the neck? Or like, what what does the back of their collar say, right? And she's treating them like inanimate objects because she's really not sure. Leading them, you know, to start talking about waxworks and how inappropriate it is that she's treating them that way. That kind of uncertainty, right? Um, or like with the unicorn and the fabulous monster, right? How do you treat anyone, right? Um, but... Uh, the White Knight and his, the sort of subtle echoes of Don Quixote make me from the beginning feel like I know where I am to some extent. I'm not in a mock epic chivalric romance, right? It's not that exactly. Um, but, um, but I know I'm supposed to laugh. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay, let us go on. We got to get to the song. This is not the song. This is the song whose tune he is singing it to because it's not his invention. Uh, my heart and lute is the name of the song also called I give thee all I can no more as by its first line as Alice remembers it, um, by Thomas More, not that Thomas More, um, Thomas More, the, I think 18th century Irish composer about whom I knew almost nothing until I looked him up before class. Um, uh, but uh, at first I was like, Thomas More. And I'm like, no, that's not, not, not that Thomas More. Um, Let's just look at this cla this song for a moment, the original song, because, of course, when we were given the first lines of poems in Alice in Wonderland, it almost always ended up being relevant. We had a direct parody of that song being done, right? So let's look at the original briefly, just so that we have some idea um, what is kind of looming in the background, because it is being explicitly juxtaposed with the White Knight song. I give thee all I can no more, though poor the offering be. My heart and lute are all the store that I can bring to thee. A lute whose gentle song reveals the soul of love full well, and better far a heart that feels much more than lute could tell. Though love and song may fail, alas, to keep life's clouds away, at least twill make them lighter pass, or gild them if they stay. And even if care at moments flings a discord or life's happy strain, let love but gently touch the strings, twill all be sweet again. All right, so what's going on here exactly? We've got a love, a love song, right? The first stanza of which, um, I give thee all I can no more, though poor the offering be. What exactly is it that the lover is offering to the beloved my heart and lute? 
are all the store that I can bring to thee. So he can he can bring his heart, and he can bring his loot. Um. Okay, cool. A lute whose gentle song reveals the soul of love full well. Um. And better far, a heart that feels much more than loot could tell. Okay, so that kind of feels like what we're building up to, right? The loot is sort of apparent in the fact that I, we're, we're singing a song, right? Um, uh, but uh, when he ends with heart there, and better far, a heart that feels much more than loot could tell, that's like the real gift, right? The loot seems to be more of a mechanism. But then there's a bit of a turn in the next stanza. Though love and song may fail, alas, to keep life's clouds away, at least twill make them lighter pass, or gild them if they stay. Um, he's taking the two things, love and song, right, heart and lute, and saying, the second stanza takes what is to me a slightly unexpected turn, which is to say, like, what's the use of them? What do you do with them? Like, what's the point of... Uh, what good will my heart and lute do you, right? Um, what is the function of this gift? Um, and he says, well, it, it, it's true that they, they might fail to keep life's clouds away. It's not going to make you happy forever, right? Neither my heart nor my lute is going to succeed in keeping life's clouds away indefinitely. Can't promise that. But, but, uh, it will make them lighter pass or gild them if they stay. So they still will have a transformative effect. Um, life's clouds will pass away more lightly in the company of my love and my song, of my heart and my lute. Or if they don't pass away, that is life's clouds, if life's clouds don't pass away, then my love and my song will gild them. Right? We'll, we'll cover them in gold. So that even the hardships of life, life's clouds, will can he, could even themselves be made golden by my heart and my lute, if you have them with you. And even if care at moments flings a discord or life's happy strain, strain being the operative word when it comes to the meter of that pair of lines, yet love but gently touch the strings, let love but gently touch the strings, twill all be sweet again. This uh, presumably is the gilding alluded to in line four of stanza two there. Um, yes, Fort Dauntless, I do think that it's, uh, instead of finding a silver lining in the clouds, gilding the clouds is supposed to be a kind of a, 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 a turning of that trope. Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly what's what's happening there. Um, uh yeah, Timothy, it is fun that the word discord does break the meter. Yeah, yeah, that is, um, uh, I mean, if you have to screw up a line, that's the way to do it, right? Um, and even really the, the content of that whole thing, if care at moments flings a discord or life's happy strain, um, the subject of those two lines is the disruption of the rhythm of life, right? And so he does it. It's 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 good. It's good. Um, yeah, yeah. Let love but gently touch the string. So again, back to the heart and the lute. And twill all be sweet again. We're going to gild the clouds. Um, so, um, okay. So, th so there's the song. Uh, it's a love song. 
that's one context to remember as we move forward. Um, this, it's a love song that is focused, in the second stanza at least, on life's troubles and how love and song can help to manage life's troubles, right? Um, how can one overcome life's troubles? Not, can't keep them away, right? Um, but, um, but you can turn uh, discord into sweetness through love and song. Okay. Um, also, notice how notice how the meter of this song works. I, I know you notice I like didn't start with the meter, which I probably should have done. Um, I give thee all, I can no more, though poor the offering be. What's the metrical pattern here? This is a familiar one, right? You've all heard this before. I give thee all, I can no more, though poor the offering be. My heart and loot are all the store. Look at that line. That's perfect. Um, remember, if you want to find out what the meter is, look for a line that's full of monosyllabic words, right? That makes it easier. My heart and loot are all the store. Clear as clear could be, right? Um, iambic tetrameter in that line. My heart and my heart and loot are all the store. Very iambic. Clearly four beats that I can bring to thee. Four beats, three beats. Four beats, three beats. Um, yeah, this is this is this is this is common. What's called common meter. Um, Tolkien loved this meter. Um, yes, Galadriel's song is like this. Uh, exactly. Yes. Um, I sang of leaves of leaves of gold and leaves of gold there grew. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's the one. Uh, okay, so we've got. And one of the consequences of common meter like this, this alteration between tetrameter and trimeter, is that it lays an emphasis on the second line. Um, if all of the lines have the same meter, like have the same length, it's easier for it to kind of roll along, right? Um, but when you're alternating lengths, you tend to pause at the end of the trimeter line and look at the punctuation. Look at the punctuation at the end of the even-numbered lines in stanza one there. Semicolon, period, semicolon, period. Right? Exactly what we would expect. I give thee all I can no more, though poor the offering be. My heart and loot are all the store that I can bring to thee. It is. It has almost the feeling of a single seven-beat line. Right? Not quite. As, of course, we do get uh, rhymes, right? More in store. So there's a, there's a, the, 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 the tetrameter lines do rhyme. More store reveals feels. Um, but, uh, yeah, it is, uh, like, for, like music, JJ, like four beats followed by three beats and a rest. Yes. Um, 
music in the Western tradition tends to think in 4-4 almost as pervasively as poetry in English tends to, to move towards iams. Both of those two things are almost inescapable. Um, not wholly inescapable. Um, but <laughs> it takes some resisting. And one of the consequences of that is there is something of a tarrying on the last syllable of the even-numbered lines. I give thee all, I can no more, though poor the offering be. My heart and lute are all the store that I can bring to thee. Notice that we've got a B-A-B rhyme here, right? More in store and B and thee are both equally rhyming monosyllabic, they're both equal monosyllabic rhymes, right? I mean, we just look at it with your eyes. That looks equal, but it doesn't sound equal, does it? I give thee all, I can no more, though poor the offering be. My heart and lute are all the store that I can bring to thee. You're aware of the more store rhyme, which feels like internal rhyme, right? But bee and thee are where you really land, right? A lute whose gentle song reveals the soul of love full well, and better far a heart that feels much more than lute could tell. Well, tell, right? I mean, that just slams home, right? Whereas reveals and feels just kind of echoes there. Again, it feels like an internal rhyme. It binds the lines together, um, but it, but because of the enjambment, right, we go straight from the odd number line into the even number line without a pause. Just as there are full stops, periods or semicolons, uh, after the even lines in that stanza, there is never any punctuation at all at the end of the odd lines, because again, those are clearly enjammed um, straight in, and that's why we don't get that same, we don't get the same weight on the, on the end rhyme there. Um, and we, we see it's the exact same rhyming pattern, um, uh, exact same rhyming pattern in the second stanza. Notice the one shift that he makes in the second stanza here is that line two and line six of the second stanza are not semicolons. They were semicolons in the first stanza, right? They're only commas in the second stanza. That is, there's, it's still not quite enjammed from line two straight into line three, but lines one through four and lines five through eight uh, form a little bit more coherent of a, uh, of a unit the second time round. Though love and song may fail, alas, to keep life's clouds away, at least we'll make them lighter pass or gild them if they stay. Hear that? It's not quite the same. I give thee all I can no more, though poor the offering be. My heart and lute are all the store that I can bring to thee. The first one is a semicolon. It still is one sentence, right? Each quatrain is a sentence. Um, but, uh, it, uh, as I said, it flows a little more forcefully between line two and three, I think, in that second stanza. Oh, by the way, the exclamation point at the end of alas is not an end stop. That's just part of the um, exclamation. Um, that's a signal to make sure that you know that alas is a, an interjection there. Um, it's, not a, it's not an end mark. 
so uh, uh, yeah, though love and song may fail, alas, to keep life's clouds away. There's no there's no pause at the end of that line just because there is an exclamation point, which you perhaps have been taught, uh, have always been taught, is an end mark in a sentence. Um, not so universally. Um, yeah. Um, it's possible that the dash after all in line one could be a, a kind of a sejura. I give thee all I can no more. Um, I don't really think there's a pause there, Timothy. I mean, he needs something like grammatically, like syntactically. Um, I give thee all I can no more. Though poor the offering, I mean, those are two; those are independent clauses. He can't just string them together, um, but he wants to, so he uses it. He doesn't put a period. I give the all. Period. I can no more, though poor the offering be. Right? Um, he wants to. It's that dash seems to me to be like I've got these two independent clauses, but I need to connect them. I want them connected. I want you know. They, they must be enjammed, right? And so therefore, like, I need, uh, uh, you know, the, the dash is like overriding the sejura. It's like an anti-sejura in that sense. Like, lest you pause at that moment, he's going to dash. I think is how that's supposed to work. Okay. All right. Let's... um. Let's go through the song once. I'm not 100% sure I've got the melody right. I saw conflicting versions of this. I'm going to um, I'm going to follow the version which seemed to be followed by the uh, first audiobook reader I ever heard, the first unabridged audio recording I ever heard of, uh, of Through the Looking Glass, which is still my favorite, uh, which was by Nadia May, who also does a marvelous reading of C.S. Lewis's um, Till We Have Faces. Um, Nadia May was a wonderful audiobook reader. Um, she's like an OG audiobook reader. And uh, I, I, I love her. And I, I had her um, Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass reading. Uh, and um, uh, so I'm, I'm going to follow the melody that she was using, which I think matches at least one arrangement of uh, uh, Thomas More's classic there. I'll tell thee everything I can, there's little to relate. I saw an aged, aged man a-sitting on a gate. Who are you, aged man, I said, and how is it you live? His answer trickled through my head like water through a sieve. He said, I look for butterflies that sleep among the wheat. I make them into mutton pies and sell them in the street. I sell them unto men, he said, who sail on stormy seas. And that's the way I get my bread, a trifle, if you please. But I was thinking of a plan to dye one's whiskers green, and always use so large a fan that they could not be seen. So having no reply to give to what the old man said, I cried, come tell me how you live, and thumped him on the head. 
His accents mild took up the tale. He said, I go my ways, and when I find a mountain rill, I set it in a blaze, and thence they make a stuff they call Roland's Macassar Oil. Yet tuppence halfpenny is all they give me for my toil. But I was thinking of a way to feed oneself on batter, and so go on from day to day, getting a little fatter. I shook him well from side to side until his face was blue. Come tell me how you live, I cried, and what it is you do. He said I hunt for haddock's eyes among the heather bright, and work them into waistcoat buttons in the silent night. And these I do not sell for gold or coin of silvery shine, but for a copper halfpenny, and that will purchase nine. I sometimes dig for buttered rolls or set lime twigs for crabs. I sometimes search for grassy knolls. Sorry, I sometimes search the grassy knolls for wheels of handsome cabs, and that's the way he gave a wink by which I get my wealth. And very gladly will I drink your honour's noble health. And now if e'er by chance I put my fingers into glue, Or madly squeeze a right-hand foot into a left-hand shoe, Or if I drop upon my toe a very heavy weight, I weep, for it reminds me so of that old man I used to know, whose look was mild, whose speech was slow, whose hair was whiter than the snow, whose face was very like a crow, with eyes like cinders all aglow, who seemed distracted with his woe, who rocked his body to and fro, and muttered mumblingly and low, as if his mouth were full of dough, who snorted like a buffalo that summer evening long ago. A sitting on a gate. There we go. The end. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, we could set it to a, a funnier rhythm. I agree. Timothy points out the common meter works for Amazing Grace, Gilligan's Island, and the Pokemon theme. Um, so, yeah, yeah, we could do uh, we could do lots of things with that. Now. Um, This song is so meta. <laughs> I just love this song. Okay. I'll tell thee everything I can. There's little to relate. I saw an aged, aged man a sitting on a gate. Now, who's the speaker? First of all, hang on. Let's do it properly this time. Looking at the first stanza. Does he deviate significantly from the metrical and sound you know, from like the, the oral vocabulary of the original. I'll tell thee everything I can, there's little to relate. I saw an aged, aged man a-sitting on a gate. Who are you, aged man, I said, and how is it you live? And his answer trickled through my head like water through a sieve. It has the same shape. Common meter, right? Um, A-B-A-B rhyme with the greater stress falling on the B rhymes because of the meter. That's similar. Um, there is a significant difference, however, in the first stanza, at least. And that is 
the enjambment or the lack of enjambment. I'll tell thee everything I can. There's little to relate. Definitely a pause between lines one and two. I saw an aged, aged man a sitting on a gate. Okay. Uh, less of a pause there. Who are you, aged man, I said, period. And how is it you live? And his answer trickled through my head. Even the and, which you'll notice is an extra syllable. That doesn't scan. And his answer trickled through my head like water through... It should just be his answer trickled through my head like water through a sieve. Right, that would scan perfectly. But he's added and there, which is odd because it's the beginning of the sentence. He didn't need and there. Um, so something odd is happening there. Um, it's as if the and, by starting that line with a conjunction, it's like he's trying to connect it. I don't know, like retroactively enjam it with the line up before, which just doesn't work. Who are you, aged man? I said. And how is it you live? And his answer trickled through my head like water through a sieve. It's almost like, you know, line seven of the stanza there remembered at the last second that it should enjam, even though it actually shouldn't enjam. <laughs> right? Now, keep in mind, we have seen many, many times now how very good Lewis Carroll is at meter. I have every reason. We have lots and lots of data uh, to tell us that if uh, Lewis Carroll is making a choppy, awkward rhythm, it is because he means to do so. Um, he, can, he can be as smooth as anybody wants to be. Um, look how much more awkward this is than the original, right? Um, it seems to, it, it's, it's very much choppier, I think, Timothy. I think that's exactly right. Um, look at the second stanza. Just by looking at the lines, the, en the ends of the lines, it looks to follow more closely the original pattern. He said, I look for butterflies that sleep among the wheat. I make them into mutton pies and sell them in the street. I sell them unto men, he said, who sail on stormy seas. And that's the way I get my bread a trifle, if you please. So there's a break before the last line, but they're supposed to be, right? Um... A trifle, if you please. And that's the way I get my bread. Um, the rhythm of those two lines is perfect. Um, the dash, though, it's like there's a change of topic, right? He gives his answer and then puts his hand out, right, um, asking for a handout, right? Um, so the second stanza and... Huh. Look at that. The third stanza is more thoroughly enjammed. But I was thinking of a plan to dye one's whiskers green and always use so large a fan that they could not be seen. Almost all enjammed. So having no reply to give to what the old man said, I cried, come tell me how you live, and thumped him on the head. Um, 
<laughs> I love this poem so much. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So that first stanza really does stand out. For its awkwardness, I mean. Uh, it's like the White Knight hasn't really got um, got his momentum yet, you know? Okay. Now. What's the um, what's the situation here? I mean, who's the speaker? I'll tell thee everything I can is the first line, right? I'll tell thee everything I can. There's little to relate. What is that? Just those two lines. What are those lines? To, where do those two lines, those first two lines, put us in this poem? I'll tell thee everything I can. There's little to relate. The white knight is the speaker of the song. That someone should sing a song with a first-person speaker is not strange, nor does it necessarily mean that the person, the human being singing the song, you know, it's not about them necessarily, right? I mean, like, you could sing Thomas More's song at a party, right? I give thee all I can no more, though poor the offering be, right? I mean, it's the 18th century. We could stand, you know, we could stand uh, next to the pianoforte and, and sing duets with this, right? And it wouldn't be true, right? Um, the speaker of the song is offering his heart and his lute, but that doesn't necessarily mean, like, it's not an autobiography, Right. You see what I mean? I'm like, it's, it's just really, really simple, the thing I'm trying to say here. But this convention of having a first person speaker who is like the sort of the, the speaker who's in whose persona the song is being sung, sung is a very common uh, uh, trope. Right. It's kind of how these songs work. So presumably we're in the same place here. Right. I'll tell thee everything I can, there's little to relate. Okay, so it's not only that the person singing is the speaker of the poem, right? It's not, um, uh, it, it, it announces itself as a first-person speaker in the first word, right? Okay, so um, the singer of the song is the speaker, the persona, from whose perspective whatever the song is is going to be told. Oh, wait, but there's more. Line two tells us that the person who is singing the song is telling a story. That's different, right? That's different from Thomas More's song, right? There's no narrative here, right? Um, he's doing this whole lyrical thing about his heart and his music, right? Um, you know, this kind of lyrical contemplation of his heart and his music and their relationship and how she and her life will be, you know, the beloved and, and her life will be enriched through his heart and his uh, uh, and his uh, lute. Um, here, 
the speaker, we get a first person speaker, but the first person speaker is in the different position of a storyteller. There's little to relate. So a humble storyteller, a storyteller who is immediately undermining his story, right? Um, I'll tell the everything I can, there's little to relate, is not a very auspicious way to begin a storytelling song, right? You, you generally don't start ballads that way. Like, if you're going to do a ballad, right, you're going to tell the, tell the story, you know, some great tale of old, right? Um, you don't usually start off, I'll tell the everything, I'll, I'll tell you what I can, but there isn't much to say, right? That's kind of opposite to the way that, you know, like normally you're like, and let me tell you the great story of long ago, right? Whatever. Um, and certainly he follows that up with um, what does not indeed sound very inspiring. What is the burden of his song? <laughs> the burden of his song is I saw an aged, aged man sitting on a gate. Okay. There was an old guy. He was sitting on a fence, a gate specifically. Okay. Agreed. Not much of a story. Not much to relate. So the interest that is going to justify a six plus stanza song uh, must be in the conversation that the two of them have, right? This meeting between the speaker and the aged, aged man. Okay. Um, yeah, J.J. says it reminds him a bit of um, Old Father William uh, from the first book. Yeah, a little bit. The back and forth. Um, yeah, the back and forth is, is sort of similar. Um, Who are you, aged man? I said. And how is it you live? Okay. This sounds like a premise. Um, who are you, aged man, I said, and how is it you live? I can imagine a... Um, I don't know. Like a Jethro Tull song or something being, uh, being composed on this premise, right? Um, let's hear the reflections of the aged, aged man uh, talking about how he lived, right? Okay. All right. Maybe Bob Dylan could do justice to something like this. I'm, I'm, I'm here for this. And his answer trickled through my head like water through a sieve. Remember, the line that doesn't fit. Um, the discordant line, just as we saw Thomas More having a discord or life's happy strain, um, that line was straining to fit in the meter, right, and risking discord. Um... So we have the discordant response. His answer trickled through my head like water through a sieve. Okay, wait, the whole point of this song, you met an old guy and you asked him how he lives. Um, which doesn't just mean like, tell me about your life, but like, tell me about your occupation, right? Like, how do you... Um, like, what do you live on? Remember, that was the phrase that uh, Alice and the Nat were using when they were talking about the looking glass insects. What does it live on? Right. Um, meaning, how does it subsist? 
how do you subsist? How do you get by? Um, yeah, Jack Rabbit, I, the Ancient Mariner, um, I agree. It, it uh, does have some uh, some memories of the Ancient Mariner, uh, the, with the frame of the Ancient Mariner here, right? Except then, the comic letdown at the end of the first stanza. His answer trickled through my head like water through a sieve. The rhyme of sieve and live, that's just brilliant. It's just brilliant. Um, that is not, I think, where we necessarily were expecting the word live to bring us, right? I mean, sieve and live are perfectly, it's a perfectly good rhyme, but not necessarily where we might have guessed it was going. I mean, again, it's one of those things, like if you just had the first six lines and had to guess where lines seven and eight were going to go, his answer trickled through my head like water through a sieve. Now, I, why would you even be telling a story about meeting an aged, aged man as sitting on a gate and asking him how he lives if you didn't pay any attention to his answer? Like, how would that even then be a story? But contrary to the expectation that is unexpectedly aroused in us in those last two lines, we are given his answer in the next stanza. What's his answer? He said, I look for butterflies that sleep among the wheat. I make them into mutton pies and sell them in the street. I sell them unto men, he said, who sail on stormy seas. And that's the way I get my bread. A trifle, if you please. Okay. I look for butterflies that sleep among the wheat. I make them into mutton pies and sell them in the street. I sell them unto men, he said, who sail on stormy seas. And that's the way I get my bread. So by making mutton pies made out of butterflies to sailors is how he lives. That's his profession. Professional mutton pie maker from butterflies in the by the docks, apparently. Um, okay. Butterflies, of course, were one of the insects uh, that Alice was talking to the gnat about, which led the gnat to talk about the bread and butterflies. It was the bread and butterfly, remember, which uh, uh, lived on weak tea and uh, never finds it, right? Um, he dies if he doesn't get weak tea, and he always dies because he never finds weak tea. Anyway... Um, so there are a number of problems here. He's not harvest. He's in a wheat field, but he's not harvesting wheat. He's harvesting butterflies that sleep among the wheat. So butterflies sleeping among the wheat on the one level kind of invokes the idea of bread and butter especially since we had the bread and butterfly before. We got the wheat, right, which you make into bread, and the butterflies. You got the butter and the bread there, right? So it's like bread and butter, like the bread and butterfly. Um, but it, it, it's not. It's just butterflies that are sleeping among the wheat. And you can't make butterflies into mutton pies. Mutton pies, of course, um, 
Uh, mutton is is sheep meat. Uh, so uh, to make a to make a pie out of a out of butterflies, and to market them as mutton pies would be utterly fraudulent, right? Um, and that's the way I get my bread. Um, okay. Um, uh, Arthur, you think that uh, if it costs too much to harvest the butterflies, he would take a net loss? Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. Um, now, what's going on here? How does this man, how does the aged, aged man live, in fact? What is the answer to the speaker's question? We can see what the answer is to the question from this first stanza, right? I don't think he's actually a pie maker. I think he's pretty clearly a beggar. How does he live? He lives by begging for coins from people. But he characterizes himself in this odd and fanciful way. Um, why is he doing this? Keep thinking about it. Now the speaker returns back to the first person. But I was thinking of a plan to dye one's whiskers green and always use so large a fan that they could not be seen. So, <laughs> so having no reply to give to what the old man said, I cried, come tell me how you live and thumped him on the head. Okay. This stanza transforms our sense of the speaker of this poem, right? What is the effect of this stanza? What is now clear after this stanza about the speaker? And on the one hand, this seems obvious, but at the same time, it's actually totally paradigm-changing. The speaker is the white knight. Like, obviously, the white knight. And that's exactly how the white knight be. Nobody else is going to be doing this. Right? But I was thinking of a plan to dye one's whiskers green and always use so large a fan that they could not be seen. Totally. That's, uh, that's like a white knight plan all the way. We had a hint at this with the way that his the words of the aged agent man passed through his head like water through a sieve. The white knight is slightly sieve-like. Um, but this, this is straight up white knight. Now, as I say, on the one hand, it's obvious. Of course the speaker is the white knight. Who else would it be? The white knight is singing his song. But, as I said, it is a complete paradigm shift, because it is normal 
to sing a song in the first person from the persona of whoever the speaker of that song is, like the Thomas More song we were looking at. But now it becomes clear that the I is actually the White Knight himself, that this song is actually autobiographical, which, again, you can't assume. Right? I mean, you know... Uh, Usually, when you're singing a song like this, a song that's in the first person, the first person speaker isn't actually you, right? Um, but this is plainly, it seems to me, obviously autobiographical. Thinking of a crazy plan. It doesn't tell us what his plan is like how he's gonna like what is by what mechanism he's gonna dye his whiskers green but um i'm sure it would have been impractical right uh and always use so large a fan that they could not be seen um okay so We have here, then, a song which now we have to go back to the beginning and kind of reorient ourselves. This is not some traditional song that he's singing. This is not some sort of theoretical thing. This is autobiography. This is a song about the knight himself. Except it's not a song about him. It's a song from his frame, like within his framework, right? From his from his point of view. But it's supposed to be a song about this aged, aged man whom he is not paying attention to. So having no reply to give to what the old man said, I cried, come tell me how you live, and thumped him on the head. Did he not like his answer? He says he didn't hear it, but then he gives it. A trifle, if you please. So he's begging for a small coin or possibly for a dessert item yes uh, Sarah you're correct about that um, having no reply to give to what the old man said could therefore potentially mean I didn't have anything to give him except I cried come tell me how you live and thumped him on the head doesn't seem the right follow up to that he asked what he, how he lives and the guy gave an answer. And the white knight doesn't seem to like that answer. So he thumps him on the head and asks him the same question again. Okay, so what's the second answer? His accents mild took up the tale. He said, I go my ways, and when I find a mountain rill, I set it in a blaze. And thence they make the stuff they call Roland's Macassar oil. Yet tuppence halfpenny is all they give me for my toil. Um... Okay. First of all, we get an interesting signal at the beginning of this, uh, um, at the beginning of this fourth stanza, 
the lack of rhyme. Tail and rill just don't rhyme. And that's the first time all of the rest of the simple monosyllabic rhymes at the end of lines have always worked. Um, but anyway, so that's weird. And it's especially noticeable that the non-rhyming line is also his description of an impossibility. Um, making mutton pies out of butterflies is merely impractical and fraudulent, <laughs> right? Um, setting fire to a mountain rill is a stream. So finding a stream in the mountain and setting it on fire, thence producing Roland's Macassar oil by somehow setting the mountain stream on fire um, is beyond impractical and fraudulent, right? Um, that seems quite impossible. Uh, from beginning to end, you can't set a stream on fire. And uh, even if you were able to, it seems that it would be unlikely um, to produce a stuff they call Roland's Macassar oil. Um, and yes, I do think that there is um, some play, Gerald, here with the fact that uh, um, this is before truth in advertising and pure food legislation legislation, yes. There were many people uh, who were selling uh, uh, what was the word? Nostrums. That was the word. Um, uh, and um, tinctures and things like that. Um, that is to say random mixtures of stuff which might actively be harmful and almost certainly would not do the things that they promised that they would do in order to suck people in. Um, and Roland's Macassar oil sounds very much like one of those things. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a similar kind of air to the first and second story. That is the first to, um, to catch butterflies and then pretend it's mutton, right? Uh, and uh, and sell them as mutton pies. That's a little bit underhanded, right? Uh, to make this stuff they call, right? Um, notice how distant that is, like how um, indirect that is. They make a stuff they call Roland's Macassar oil. There's no promise that it's oil, that it does anything, right? It's this unknown thing, which comes from setting mountain streams on fire, apparently. Um, <laughs> Karina Lars thought, oh, yeah, nostrums is a great word. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a fun one. And it does sound better than snake oil, for sure. Okay, um, but of course, notice his complaint is yet tuppence halfpenny is all they give me for my toil. He's not getting rich. Uh, like, 
Again, notice how this all fits, how this is beginning to fit. Come tell me how you live. How do you support yourself? What is the secret of your wealth? And he's like, oh yeah, I scam the sailors by selling them butterfly pies. Oh, no, no, no. I uh, manufacture Roland's Macassar oil by setting fire to mountain streams. Yeah. But at the same time, he undermines that. Not because it's not, in fact, a get rich quick scheme. All he gets is tuppence halfpenny, which is not much, right? Um, two and a half cents is all he's given for all the work that he does. But I was thinking of a way to feed oneself on batter, and so go on from day to day, getting a little fatter. That's also an interesting and important rhyme. How is that different? Once again, he's varied from the pattern. Do you see how he, how he varies from the pattern there? What, um, uh, what does that, um, do, do you see the shift? I shook him well from side to side until his face was blue. Come tell me how you live, I cried, and what it is you do. Um, yes. Um, Timothy, you are absolutely right. Getting a little fatter is not in I am's. The meter totally changes there. And so go on from day to day, getting a little fatter. It shifts from I am's to trochees. It's really jarring in that line. The rhyme itself, too, it's a two-syllable rhyme. It's the only two-syllable rhyme we've had in the whole poem so far. They've all been monosyllables, and they've all um, just, you know, been, just been the one word rhyme, right? Batter and fatter. It's a, it's a fatter rhyme, right? And yeah, we get a major deviation in the rhythm there. But I was thinking of a way to feed oneself on batter. The word batter itself is trochaic, right? Um... Well, Timothy, I don't know that butterflies and mutton pies exactly count, but you're right, that's close. It's close. Um, assonance and then the rhyme. Butterflies and mutton pies. It's not exactly a three-syllable rhyme, but it's, it's close. It's kind of getting there. Okay. He still keeps asking the same question. Not content with the Roland's Macassar oil question, too. And yeah, thank you, Sarah, for... Um, I was forgetting what a Macassar was, too. Um, so Macassar oil is hair oil. Uh, so anti-Macassars are those cloths that are draped over the back of chairs so that hair oil doesn't stain the upholstery over time. Um, uh, yeah. So Roland's Macassar oil technically would be the hair oil of whoever Roland is, whose hair oil apparently comes from setting fire to mountain rills. Um, I guess. Anyway, okay. Third story. 
He said, I hunt for haddock's eyes among the heather bright, and work them into waistcoat buttons in the silent night. And these I do not sell for gold or coin of silvery shine, but for a copper halfpenny, and that will purchase nine. Okay, so haddock, of course, is a fish. So he's hunting for the eyes of fish among the heather, and he works them into waistcoat buttons in the silent night, right? This idea of him industriously working through the night, um, sewing waistcoat buttons out of fish eyes found among the heather. And, uh, but he doesn't sell these for gold or for silver. He sells them nine for a halfpenny. Once again, emphasizing how very little he makes out of now the first two stories were increasing in sketchiness, right? Um, but all the while his income has been decreasing in his stories. This doesn't seem to be an increased sketchiness, though perhaps an increased uh, impossibility, right? Um, but then he goes on. I sometimes dig for buttered rolls or set limed twigs for crabs. I sometimes search the grassy knolls for wheels of handsome cabs. And that's the way, he gave a wink, by which I get my wealth, and very gladly will I drink your honor's noble health. Returning once again to begging, right? Um, Once again, his stories are of impossibilities. Sometimes I dig for buttered rolls or set limed twigs for crabs. Limed twigs are traps that you set for birds, right? Lime is uh, very sticky, right? So you put lime on a twig uh, and then a little bird lands on it and gets stuck. And the more it tries to get away, the more its feathers begin to get stuck uh, until you come and take it and kill it. Um, so that works for birds, unlikely to work for crabs, right? Um, nor are there likely to be many wheels of handsome cabs among the grassy knolls, exactly. Um, and that's the way he gave a wink by which I get my wealth. And very gladly will I drink your honor's noble health, presumably if you give me money. And we're not told. Then the story is left. We're not told what he did with the old man, if he continued beating him as he's been all the way through, if he paid attention to that, how he responded to that. Instead, we get this retroflexion, right? And now, if e'er by chance I put my fingers into glue, and here comes my favorite line of this whole song, or madly squeeze a right-hand foot into a left-hand shoe... I just love that line. Or madly squeeze a right-hand foot into a left-hand shoe. Or if I drop upon my toe a very heavy weight. I weep, for it reminds me so of that old man I used to know. So, sticking his fingers in glue, putting his shoe on the wrong foot, 
for dropping heavy weight on his toe. I'll remind him of the old man somehow. And then we get this extended reflection on the old man um, as he refuses to end the final stanza. And then finally, a sitting on a gate, right? That old man I used to know, a sitting on a gate. But we get all of these descriptions and qualifiers of the old man. As you can tell, I'm accelerating and skipping bits because we're out of time. We're not going to have time to talk about the whole thing. We're going to come back to it. I'm not going to not finish talking about this poem because I love this poem. Um, there were some other things to be noticed. Did you notice the major break again? He said, I hunt for haddock's eyes among the heather bright and work them into waistcoat buttons in the silent night. What? For the first and only time in the entire song, he wholly abandons the rhyme. Right? Um, what's going on with the breaks in this song? It's a very irregular song. The two things going on, that is the reflections of the speaker, the White Knight himself, his apparent autobiographical identity with the White Knight himself, and the actual words of the old man sitting on a gate, and then to the final affirmation, the final assertion of the deep and long-lasting impact that this old man has had upon his life somehow, moving him to tears. Um, how does this all fit together? What is going on here? And, and why does he keep breaking the poem? And what cues can we get from where and how he's breaking it? Like breaking into I am's there in line four of that stanza or deviating from the rhyme scheme and the metrical scheme entirely in that next stanza in line three. Right, And what pattern do the old man's speeches have and the knight's reflections? And how might they all fit together? These are the questions that we will need to answer and think about next time as we return to the poem and then move forward into Alice's coronation as queen, finally. So we will, uh, um, we will get there. And yes... Uh, Mighty Felix, I agree. That dilation of, of Alice remembering, always remembering the White Knight does seem to be reflected within the song, doesn't it? Um, so yes, the way in which Alice, Alice always remembering the White Knight is parallel or not to how the White Knight is always going to remember the aged, aged man. Definitely a parallel that we want to think about more. Okay, much more to think about uh, in this poem. And then, of course, we have to go back to its uh, to the name and what the name is called and everything else. Um, uh, for those of you who are watching the video here, of course, I've put all of the different titles um, through the through the song um, as we uh, as we've been going through. Anyway, 
but we'll um, so we'll come back to that next time too. So more poetry to discuss next time, and then we will move on uh, to Alice's coronation and look at her queening there at the end. Thanks everybody. Should be able to be here next week to continue this uh, with you a week from tonight. We are getting close to the end uh, to the book here. Thanks everybody, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now. <laughs>